Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There's been a question hovering over markets these days. How much political upheaval can there be without any real substantial and prolonged reaction from markets? Chuck Lieberman has perhaps some answers. He's chief investment officer and managing partner of Advisors Capital Management, which oversees about $1.3 billion. Also, he is a Bloomberg View columnist uh, through the Bloomberg Profits uh, Group. Charles, Chuck. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you raised an interesting reality check, basically saying that all of this political noise only m matters so much as it affects underlying growth. Can you explain? Sure. Um, well, obviously, the news is full of politics. Um, this stuff happening seemingly almost every day. And Washington is obviously dysfunctional. Uh, but how that relates to the stock market depends on whether or not it uh, actually affects corporate profits. If companies are doing well, if the economy is growing, and the economy is certainly growing, and corporate profits are actually doing quite well, then stock valuation should rise over time to reflect that rise in profitability. Uh, yes, uh, we uh, pay attention to the politics. It certainly captures our attention, but it's a sideshow to the valuation of stocks. Well, uh, Chuck, maybe you could talk a little bit more detail about corporate profits in light of share buybacks and the ability to discern what is a real profit and what's not a real profit since companies use gap and non-gap uh, results. It's, it's, it's increasingly difficult. Well, look, there are different ways to measure profits. Um, we have uh, a system in the U.S., uh, GAP accounting. Uh, international companies use a different methodology. Uh, but our methodology is what it is. Uh, and over time, what it has shown is that corporate profits rise pretty substantially over time. Uh, there were five consecutive quarters in which U.S. corporate profits fell, and bears on the market uh, used that as a justification to argue that stocks were overvalued. But at the same time, if you actually look at what was going on, all of the decline in profits came about because of the energy sector, where oil prices dropped from 110 bucks a barrel to about 25. Uh, that was a huge decline in the profitability of very large companies like Exxon and Chevron and others. Uh, everyone else, however, on average, was actually growing profits, and their stocks went down too. Uh, so stock valuations look attractive. And, and now we have the energy sector actually coming back. Oil prices are still volatile, but uh, the underlying profitability of companies is doing fine. You know, uh, Chuck, I'm struck by the fact that stocks rallied tremendously after the November election of President Donald Trump. Uh, and a lot of this was because people were baking in the expectation of tax cuts for corporations as well as reduced regulations. That directly was baked into the prices of stocks. So this is a fundamental change. Have we washed that out? And, you know, if we haven't, this goes to something more than just, you know, people's feelings. This is a fundamental issue and it is driven directly by policy. 
Uh, fair enough, uh, but keep in mind uh, a number of things have all other things have also happened. So yes, uh, I think the market is hoping that uh, Trump will get some tax cuts through, uh, but that's not the only variable involved. It's also less regulation. It's also more spending on infrastructure. So there are a lot of ways in which policies that he advocates could in fact benefit corporate profits in the U.S. Well, hold on a second. How many of those policies have to get through in order to justify a current value valuations? Well, <laughs> I think I would argue any. Uh, at this point, uh, people believe that Trump is going to get nothing. Um, and that's one of the reasons why stocks haven't continued to rise. Uh, in the meantime, corporate profits have. Uh, we just had the strongest quarter since 2011. So corporate profits continue to march on. Uh, the politics is just a constant show. Chuck, when do you sell? Uh, well, you sell if you start to think that the economy is at risk. Uh, recessions are never good for stock valuation. Corporate profits invariably go down. Uh, you sell if you think that uh, the government is going to somehow inhibit corporate profits. Well, when does Chuck Lieberman sell? I guess that, I mean, to, to, to be more pointed about it, because, uh, all right, you know, when you see a decline, let's say, in stock prices, you can make the argument that that's the time to buy, not when they are at records. Fair enough. And uh, what we do is we continue to watch what they're doing, what the government is doing, because it does matter. Uh, and when I say the government, I don't mean just the administration. I also mean the Federal Reserve and, and foreign governments. All of those variables matter. As long as the economy continues to grow, and right now we see no reason why it shouldn't continue to grow at a, at a solid clip, not a rapid clip, uh, and because of uh, leverage in the corporate sector as well as uh, how lean they are, I expect corporate profits to continue to grow in the, in the ballpark of 8 to 10% per year. And as long as that's happening, I don't want to sell unless the economy looks like it's really at risk. Chuck, one thing that you pointed to in your recent column was that there is so much cash still out there that has not been invested yet. How much cash uh, are you looking at? Where is it? Because if I look at mutual funds, for example, particularly equity mutual funds, they're pretty heavily invested. There isn't a lot of cash there. Well, yes. Well, that's one of the reasons why I was very vague with that statement, uh, because it is difficult to measure. So start off with mutual funds. The amount of cash they hold varies over time and fund to fund. Uh, on average, they look like they're a little bit heavy now, but we're not talking about a huge amount, 3%, 4%. Uh, but then when you look at uh, the billions that have flowed into both money funds and into CDs and, and bank accounts, all because people are nervous about the market, there are a lot of people who pulled out of equities back in 2008, 2009, and still haven't gotten in. And I'm still reading about people who are hoping that the market sells off in order to give them an opportunity to get in. So I think there's a lot of money on the sidelines, and you can see that, I think, from the behavior of the market. Uh, the market really has not been able to sustain any material decline of any size for any period of time in the last several years. Um, and in fact, people look at that and comment how that's a negative. I think of it as a reflection of a positive, which is all of that cash sitting on the sidelines by people who've missed the market. Chuck, let me bring a quick question for you. What was the, the, the biggest mistake you've made when you look at the market over the last 12 months? Uh, over the last 12 months. Uh, thanks for throwing me a curveball, Penn. Um, not being more aggressive. Um, I, I think this market, there, there's so much fear out there and there's so much caution. 
uh, I think this that creates an environment in which people are looking for opportunities to get in if they can, and I think uh, you have to be aggressive until uh, conditions turn less favorable. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thanks very much. Chuck Lieberman, he is the Chief Investment Officer Managing Partner, Advisors at Capital Management. Uh, he uh, helps manage more than a billion dollars of assets uh, under management. Well, we have a massive trade deficit with Germany, plus they pay, they pay far less than they should on NATO and the military. This is according to President Donald Trump posting this message on Twitter. Here to tell us more is Patrick Donahue. He is a government reporter for Bloomberg, and he joins us from Berlin. Patrick, thanks for being with us. Uh, maybe you could Hi. just set out for us what is the fact and what is the rhetoric when it comes to trade between the United States and Germany? Well, there's definitely a, tr a big trade uh, surplus that Germany has, uh, not just with the U.S., but with uh, most European countries. It's it's sort of locked in the eurozone, and so um, and if you look if you look back at the imbalances that were triggered through the creation of the euro and the succession, you know, the crisis, uh, these are imbalances that are sort of built in. Um, it's true that there is a pretty staggering surplus, and it's not just Trump, the U.S. administration, who, who likes to talk about this, but also the European Commission, uh, the OECD, the IMF have criticized Germany for doing too little to address the surplus. Patrick, how new is this conversation? I mean, is this something that has been discussed in back rooms for years and now we're just seeing it in a very different light, uh, sort of aired through, uh, I guess, campaign speeches and, and Twitter? Uh, the, the, the trade issue is not new. I think even in the, the Obama administration, there was plenty of criticism about uh, Germany's uh, deficit, I think, or a surplus, sorry. Um, with the Trump administration, it's taken a completely different tack. If you listen to somebody like um, Trump's top trade advisor, Peter Navarro, uh, the way he discusses trade, um, he, he lays blame to Germany for most of it and says that Germany's hiding behind its membership in the euro uh, to take advantage of its position, um, which sounds strange to German ears because it's not something you can really undo. Patrick, the automobile industry and automobile exports, I wonder if you could just speak about the German role there and also about their role in manufacturing in the United States. Auto exports are the backbone of German of Germany's uh, export economy, its export might. Um, and when Donald Trump, for example, talks about all of the Mercedes and BMWs on his street in New York, um, it's true. Americans buy a lot of German cars. Americans like German cars. But at the same time, a lot of those German cars are built in the U.S. And so it's not simply a matter of Americans buying German cars that are shipped overseas from Germany. Uh, it's more complicated than that. You know, Patrick, I'm really struck by what Angela Merkel said over the weekend, where she said, you know, we Europeans cannot rely on the U.S. the way that we have. I, I was past. struck, too. I was in the beer tent with her. And I did you, not expect her to talk about geopolitics at a campaign rally. So you were there. What was the uh, response like? What was the mood like when uh, she uttered those words? Um, those words were uttered at the beginning of a, of a long sentence that continued with this idea that, well, we Europeans have to go our own way. We have to take our destiny in our own hands. 
that sort of rhetoric coming from America was not entirely new. Uh, this reliability comment is rather new. And in the context of the well, the breakdown at the G7 summit when the administration, U.S. administration, Trump would not commit to remaining in the Paris Climate Accord, uh, it took a whole new meaning. And so when you when you place the reliability of your closest post World War II ally in doubt, uh, then that's a big deal. The question here is. Did she mean to cause such a stir? Was she delivering this to the, the, the German electorate? Um, I don't know. We have we have a, a, tr a Twitter response from President Trump today. Uh, clearly, this is roiled things across the Atlantic. Patrick, when I look at the exports as a percentage of GDP and you look at various countries, Germany comes out as really top of the list. Forty More than 41% of GDP is accounted for as exports. What does Germany do that the other countries in Europe or even in the United States, which is just around 10%, uh, don't do? Well, one thing Germany does is it manufactures um, quality products and exports them. And it has done that very well for a long time. Uh, on the other side, it, it's a question of what Germany has not done. Um, an, an export surplus is, you know, what Germany exports minus what it's what it's not importing. So the, the criticism for Germany, obviously, it's impossible to say, stop making such great cars. It's rather Germany should do more to um, boost domestic demand domestic spending to raise imports. This has been a classic criticism of, of German policy. And there's a back and forth about that. The Germans say they're doing plenty. Um, I mean, leave aside Trump, but as I said, the European Commission, the IMF, have come down pretty hard on Germany for not addressing the issue and creating imbalances within the Eurozone and globally. You know, Patrick, I'm struck by what you're saying, that there are Europeans that agree with President Trump, at least on uh, with respect to Germans' uh, role in trade and their trade surplus. Uh, uh, that I, might be taking it too far. OK, but. well, that was what I was going to ask. Is that taking it too far? Uh, you know, because it really has been created as sort of a, uh, a Trump versus Merkel kind of uh, kind of situation right now. Well, I mean, when you talk about trade policy and trade arrangements, things get complicated, as with lots of other things. Trump's um, view of the problem is somewhat crude compared to how, you know, the chief economist at the IMF might criticize Germany's uh, surplus. So uh, that is just to say that when Donald Trump or Peter Navarro or somebody else, I don't know, Steve Bannon starts talking about the German exports, it's, it's not the same thing, but it's all, it's, there's addressing a, a, an issue that has been right. on the table for a while, but there's a, there's something else going on there. Patrick Donahue, thank you so much for joining us. Patrick Donahue is a Berlin reporter for Bloomberg News, and he comes to us from Berlin, Germany, very diplomatically saying that uh, the tone of President Trump's comments perhaps does not jive in any way, shape or form with the Europeans, regardless of their views on Germany's policies.
A collective ignorance, a mistrust of finance today. It's detrimental to our personal and national financial security. And here to help us reimagine what the finance industry could be is Mihir Desai. He is the Mizuho Financial Group Professor of Finance at the Harvard Business School. And he's also a professor of law at the Harvard Law School and the author of a new book entitled The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return. Professor Desai, thanks very much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. What what prompted you to write this book? Well, it got started by accident, which is I was asked to give a talk to graduating students. And I realized that uh, what I wanted to do was take finance and both humanize it and demystify it. I think finance is broken in some ways, and certainly it's perceived as broken. And so I think the path forward is first to make it accessible to people everywhere. Finance kind of cloaks itself in complexity, and we need to demystify it. So the book does that by telling stories. And then the second piece is to humanize it, which is to tell the stories that make people realize that the underlying ideas of finance are humanistic. They're not crass, and they actually can be used in a humanistic way. You know, when you talk about demystifying financial concepts, part of the problem is that finance can be complicated. It's not just jargon. It's when you're talking about derivative concepts and you're talking about, you know, a high theory that is based on the transfer of money that a lot of people just simply don't even understand to begin with. How do you go about doing that? Well, so there's no doubt that, you know, the intricacies of a CDO are fairly complex. But the underlying ideas of what a derivative instrument, for example, are. Um, the way I try to explain it is by going back to the first person who pioneered the use of options, which is Thales, the father of Greek philosophy. He's the first option contract writer. Uh, he put down a deposit to rent out all of presses. And so you can tell the stories that actually undergird a lot of these financial technologies um, in a way that makes it a lot more easy to understand. Why do you think that finance has such a bad reputation? Well, I think partly because it's well-earned. I mean, I think there have been problems. And I think there are areas where finance has become somewhat extractive rather than value-creating. But the larger point is that people are looking for something to blame today. <laughs> uh, they're upset with their economic prospects, and finance is an easy and um, attractive target to them. And as a consequence, we have a profession which has gotten demonized, which has really bad consequences. It's bad because people within the profession actually don't have as much to aspire to. So in the book, I wanted to say, look, the underlying ideas are actually quite noble. We should make finance aspirational as opposed to defining it downward and expecting less and less. I uh, wonder if you could tell us, what does Jane Austen uh, have to do with risk management? Well, it turns out everything. So uh, in the second chapter on risk management, I try to uh, use Anthony Trollope and Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, to talk about risk management. Because underneath most of those novels is the problem of a young woman in the marriage market who has to manage risks, right? So if you think about Mr. Collins's proposal to Lizzie, he's playing off her risk aversion. It's one of the worst proposals ever, basically. You know, you're not that attractive. You're not that rich. You better take my bid before you kind of become too old. And she has to kind of gamble by waiting for Mr. Darcy. And the really interesting part about that risk management problem in Phineas Finn by Anthony Trollope, um, the character Violet Effingham actually divines both diversification and options. She doesn't call it that, but she uses it. So she says, for example, you know, she's bemoaning the lack of un being able to unable to pick among suitors. And she says, you know, if only I could marry 10 which is a way of saying diversification. And then she finally says, um, you know what I'm going to do? She's not a fan of romantic love. She basically says, I'm just going to sort, I'm going to pile up a few different possibilities. And then when I'm ready, I'm going to get married, which is kind of acquiring a portfolio of options and then exercising one 
uh, when you're ready. So she actually got risk management in a deep way before you know we had the equations to prove it. Mayor, you teach finance at Harvard, and I imagine uh, that you have seen many students and you've seen uh, perhaps a change in them and, and the concern, especially since the 2008 financial crisis, about the reputation that finance has had. Can you explain? Yeah, no, I think it's been... Um, you know, really problematic. So finance has become less and less viewed as an aspirational profession. Recently, I was speaking to about 40 or 50 of them, and I asked them how many of them were going into finance. A whole bunch raised their hand. And I said, how many of you expect to be in finance in 10 years? And the number was a quarter of that, which is a way of saying they kind of did it for now, but they don't feel it's part of their identity. In other words, they're doing it for the money so they can go on and do what they really believe in? No, I think they're doing it because they like it, and then they're ashamed of it because it's looked at in a way that is problematic. Um, and that's terrible. Why? Because, you know, finance is hugely important to the economy. If we don't get finance right, we've seen what happens. And so we want really good people going into it who, who aspire to be doing great things. And so what the book says is actually finance is central. If you think about the two big solutions to the world's problems today in finance, one is regulation, and the second is outrage, you know, just occupy. I think both of those are unproductive. Um, outrage isn't going anywhere. And regulation, we know, has counterproductive consequences. So the idea in the book is to say, let's re just get back to the nobility of the ideas. Because if we get back to the nobility of the ideas, that in the long run is the way people start behaving better. Is the nobility, uh, you referenced the nobility of ideas, does that include personal accountability? Yeah. Because it's one thing if you're playing with other people's money, and it's another when you're playing with your own reputation and your own money. Absolutely. So there are several times in the book where I use the ideas of, for example, leverage um, to talk about reputation and to talk about personal accountability. So leverage is a good example. Um, of course, I use a variety of ways to talk about it, but one of them is the Merchant of Venice, you know, which is just a way of saying people think that's a play about debt. There's a debt contract between Antonio and, and Shylock. And the answer, of course, is if you look at the text, it's actually about commitments, right? It's all about commitments between people. And that's what most scholars think that play is about. So I try to use that to kind of say that's what leverage is. It's a commitment. And leverage is fantastic. People in finance know that. You get to do things you have no right to do. That's why people in finance love You get it. to create money. You get to create money. And the same thing is true um, if you think about it in a variety of other ways. So the great quote from Jefferson um, is that, you know, your reputation is the most important lever because people will allow you to do things you have no right to do. And protecting that reputation and behaving in that way is really, really critical. So you started out by saying that finance used to be th thought of as a noble profession. Uh, but I can think of a lot of times during history where finance or debt was considered somewhat dirty and people wanted to have it somewhat removed from themselves. What's the golden era that you would like to see uh, some kind of uh, resurrection of? Well, you know, it's, that's a great question. I think there's always been problematic because debt has always been problematic. But that was born of real ignorance, right? You know, money is barren. How can you do these things? Um, and also sometimes anti-Semitism was associated with that as well. Um, so I don't know if there really has been a golden era. What I'm trying to just suggest is let's get back to the ideas because we are so far removed from them. And this is why the practice of finance has got to wake up. They can't just say, you know, I'm doing God's work and I'm great. You got to be able to say we have problems but we actually do something really important and we can get back to things that are actually really value creating. Mahir Desai, thank you so much for joining us. Mahir Desai is Mizuho Financial uh, Group Professor of Finance at Harvard Business School, as well as a professor of law at Harvard Law School. Uh, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He just uh, uh, wrote a new book, The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return. Really fascinating.
Up until now, Intel has really been the only game in town when it comes to computer chips. It's in a league of its own. It has dominated the industry, but suddenly it finds itself fending off competition. Anand Srinivasan is here with us. He is the senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he comes to us uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York City. Uh, Anand, you know, I'm struck by uh, sort of the idea that somebody who is so so in the in the lead, all of a sudden finding that that someone else is catching up to them. Can you explain how this is sort of the situation with Intel right now? Sure. I mean, AMD has lagged from both a performance uh, perspective and a market share perspective over time in the CPU business in the in the computer processor. AMD business. being advanced micro devices, and Absolutely. that's the uh, the new competitor that's kind of coming up, or the newly uh, dominant competitor that's coming up. Right. Uh, AMD does go through some cycles. It's been around in the business for a long time, but um, its uh, market share, both on the PC side as well as in the server chip side has uh, waned pretty substantially. And over the last two years, AMD has sort of reinvented itself, refocused itself, um, cleaned up its act, both literally uh, from a product perspective as well as from a financial perspective. And uh, at its analyst day, uh, launched several chips. Um, over the In the first part of the year, they launched their desktop chips, uh, and they will be launching um, notebook chips and uh, server chips. Now, the interesting thing is that these chips are built off of a new architecture are meant to um, compete with Intel all the way from the low end to the high end. Historically, AMD has been pretty competitive at the lower end of the product spectrum. So low end notebooks, low end desktops, low end servers, it has had a product that has been competitive with Intel predominantly on price with a performance match. Right now, it's coming out with products that are suddenly performance competitive, right? And they still retain their price edge, which is priced lower than Intel. So Intel finds itself in an unusual position of having to either seed um, price dominance um, or um, will give up some share. Now, if you're a customer of Intel, you're going to definitely use this as a bargaining chip to try and lower the price for Intel's chips for sure. But you're you're going to be uh, looking at AMD chips more closely. Now, that's the product strategy AMD versus Intel. What's been happening with the PC market is the PC market doesn't suck as badly as it did before. So well said, is, well said, Anna. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So it is um, low single digit decline. So we could have a year potentially in the minus two plus two percent range, and we could have this sort of. Um, um, uh, less badness continue for uh, for an extended period of time. So PCs are going to be an okay place to be. And in that unit volume environment, one of the things, one of the segments that has emerged is the gaming market. The gaming market is a particular breed of devices that sell for anywhere between $2,000 and $5,000 per PC. I thought you were going to say a different breed of customer because they're willing to pay this kind of money. Absolutely. And these are, you talk about these with the same sort of reverence that you talk about with autos. You sort of use liquid-cooled, you use air-cooled, you use um, high-end CPUs from Intel and, and now, uh, or AMD. And well, they almost look like cockpits of, of, of advanced fighter jets now. I mean, the absolutely. gaming paraphernalia that has uh, emerged is 
much greater than just the steering wheel for, let's say, Xbox and you know, drive, driving. Uh, you, you certainly want a, a Hemi or two that drives your engine for sure. Well, so this means that if you want to play games like Galactic Civilizations or you want to play uh, or Halo, I don't know, from Halo, right? I just want to you, point out, Pim. I somehow do not think that this is like out of personal knowledge that you're. I have a feeling you looked up some of the popular games. No, no? actually, actually, I have to, I have to say that I come from the generation that's put quarters into video game ah. uh, machines, so I've kind of lived with this. You need a lot of quarters for this kind of yeah. system. Yeah, here. Well, this, uh, this is where I wanted to go with this, which is that what kind of price point are we talking about? The, I mean, we're, we're talking about is the, the recent Intel chips that have been launched uh, vary in range between the thirteen ninety nine to nineteen ninety nine for the CPU alone at the at the high end so two thousand dollars just for the cpu just for the cpu and at the low end could range um uh, between the 399 to 1200 price points so these are very very high-end chips meant to do a few things really really well now you you're not pick- you're not convincing lisa though by the way just to, to go out and spend you know five grand on a computer well, here. look i've I, look i'm the mom of two boys right so if one of them came to me and said mommy mommy can i have some pocket change so i can buy a two thousand dollar cpu i would laugh at them right so i mean i'm just thinking who is the customer here these are high-end gamers uh, uh and china is, is a particularly um interesting country in so far as uh, from a gaming experience part of the world uh the uh, there's a lot of gamers there. Um, and also the e-gaming has helped drive this gaming phenomenon where esports, where you watch other people yes. compete. And, you go to and arenas win. and you actually watch other people play video games. There, there, There is a substantial demographic out there. And this is part of the reason why the PC market, there's also a divergence between, a small divergence between uh, PC revenues and PC units. The units... Uh, may still be in the minus two to plus two percent range, but the um, revenues could be slightly better if the gaming segment does well. All right. So just quickly, Intel going into this market, they're going to make a big splash. Is this going to work for them? Help the stock? Help the uh, this company? is going to be this. This is in part a defensive strategy against AMD. They want to show that we are the best game in town at the high end and at the low end. Um, and they want to relegate AMD as much as possible to the lower end where it's, where it's always been. All right. Well, thank you very much. You know, I want to know maybe Brian uh, Krasanich, the chief executive officer, maybe he's a PC gamer, and that's why they're also interested in this. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.